Well, my name is Hilary Rose, and I've been asked to chair this meeting, which I have done with enormous pleasure. Um, I'm, I'm presently a guest professor at the London School of Economics in sociology, where I, as I'm a feminist sociologist who loves working on the life sciences, um, that really explains um, why I've been very contentedly working with BIOS, as there are other people with like interests. So, one of the things I, um, I mostly work as very much as a feminist, but one, and I nowadays work mostly on science, but I used to work a lot on health policy, which is why I think LSE decided that it would be nice to have me as a chair. Um, I have known Rita for quite a while, so this was just an absolute honor and delight. Anyway, um, I used to work at the WHO when I was completely fed up during the Thatcher years. Um, because it was d taking part in something constructive, doing something positive for people's health in a time which was terribly bleak and you could see sickness expanding. Um, then I had great fun. It's how I know some of the people in this room. I was involved as a young academic here in teaching a course jointly held between the public health doctors um, in training um, at the London School of Hygiene and some health policy students here at the LSC. It was enormously interesting to teach them. And of course, the medical doctors were far, far more experienced than our MA lot, but it worked wonderfully. And they were, it was very nice teaching them and meeting everyone. Anyway, so it wasn't too surprising. But when I went to Berzite to visit women's studies, and actually I gave a seminar there, which I found amazing that in that so underfunded environment that these young um, MA students were actually able to listen in English to a whole seminar. And I was just incredibly impressed. So that's when I first met Rita. And given this sort of, sort of uh, uh, overlocking of our fields in some interesting ways, particularly the WHO and the teaching stuff that I did here, um, that it was just been a pleasure to get to know her. And the more I've got to know her, well, you'll hear me when I talk to, to, to that, um, the more sort of academically I am in awe of her. Um, to do the work that she's done in the context where she works is impressive. Now, we are a smaller meeting than, you know, I'd, I'd hoped, but it's, it's post-term, which is a pity because it means the students are away. So it's, you're all tremendously welcome, but... So I think what we'll do is the idea is for Rita to talk for about 30, 40 minutes. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then what we thought we'd do is ha we'd have a question and answer session. But, you know, the usual things. Please make your questions like questions if you want to make a comment. But whatever you do, keep it short. Okay? Because that, that way we get much more discussion um, going along and you'll hear much more from Rita. Now... There's something which is absolutely amazing to me, which I'm advised to do. Please notify the audience of the event Twitter hashtag LSC Yakaman and encourage them to use it. Now, I don't even know how to do any of this stuff, so those of you who do, do your thing. Um, and now I turn with enormous pleasure to a formal welcome of Rita. Now, Rita Yakerman is an internationally recognized public health researcher. Her particular contribution has been the study 
of the effects of the long-term military occupation on the mental and physical health of the population. Typically, such work has been carried out by NGOs, but by contrast, or international agencies, but by contrast, Rita is actually part of the occupied community that she studies. This gives her an absolutely unique perspective. I know of no other work like it. It's as it were, as um, that great historian, E.P. Thompson, used to say, is history from below. And this is public health from below. So I first met Rita, as I said, when I went to women's studies. I knew something that Bezide had a tradition of not only doing academic work, but simultaneously both the teachers and the students engaging themselves in the lives of the local community. But what I found Rita was doing, I found myself completely unprepared. Um, she, together with a group, set up the Institute of Community and Public Health. And this came after a long and very, very difficult period where all the schools and all the universities, um, the Palestinian schools and universities, were closed by the Israeli Defence Force. Influenced by the Commission on the Determinants of Health. Now, this is rather nice. This echoes, for some of us who have been around the British health scene for a long time, this echoes something called the Black Report on Inequalities in Health. And there's some sort of quite interesting links. That is that um, one of the reasons why I find Rita's work so interesting is that it's actually much more socially theorised than most public health research. I mean, forgive me, those of you who are actually in the game, but that's just my personal response as a sociologist. And I, I realised why this was, and that's that she and I had both been taught by the same person, um, Peter Townsend, who taught me when I was at LSE as a student. He taught her when she was at Essex as a student. And he's most recently been, until, he, alas, he sadly died, a professor of social policy here. So there's sort of some nice, interesting circuits of people who are interested in health and social policy, which is absolutely classic uh, in the academic world. Now, the Institute's objectives have been to document what has happened to the physical and mental health of Palestinians. And Rita has played an absolutely leading part in this. Her work has made a special contribution to the study of the health of women and their children under occupation. WHO has long recognised the devastating effect of war on populations, but we don't know very much about the, the, the health of civilian populations under, under occupation. That's something different, which is, under, which is understudied, and it needs documenting and sharing. A second objective of Rita and her colleagues has to be to find ways which the Palestinian people could have a voice in planning healthcare services. I hear some of you thinking about Britain, that would be nice. Um, but she's always been unafraid to swim against a tide in which nationalism and national identity are dominant. One of her findings, especially significant for both health, gender and policy, was that girls had higher malnutrition rates than boys. Perhaps it is not surprising that in addition to her US biomedical qualifications, that she studied this MPhil in Sociology and Social Policy at Essex, where she was able to explore the relationship of gender and pub public health in much greater detail. <coughs> now, this gives her work, as I hinted before, a theoretical nuance which is rarely found in public health research. Thus, although the Institute's term title uses the term community, 
For her, the concept is closer to that used in social theory. Thus, in Britain, a community physician, a public health doctor, works for a geographically defined area. This is not possible in the context of Palestine. What she uses is a concept which is much closer to social theory's idea of the imagined community. And this is enormously important as this much more nuanced approach because when the research context of the population is under military occupation is taken into account, the situation is intensified for a researcher by the construction of the wall where geographical boundaries are continuously redrawn by the occupier. Thus, the community concept as a geographically defined area is useless. One defined by a community of solidarity is critical, both for the empirical researcher as well as for the well-being of the people. I will just briefly touch on one thing about her CV, but it's rather impressive. But one of the most interesting things that she did recently was, together with Richard Horton, the editor of of The Lancet, and a group of other scholars, they published a a special issue of The Lancet devoted to Palestinian health research. And this was in March 2009. Now... Um, those of you who are in the academic business or are about to come into it, you know about all these research assessment exercises and impact factors. Okay? That issue of the journal was, at the end of the day, when the articles had been posted, it was downloaded 90,000 times. Now, that's not a bad impact factor. So, I don't think I have to carry on singing Reader's praises, just to say it has been a wonderful intellectual, personal, and you know, shared in so many ways. Delight to have known her, and to con- I hope we continue to be friends and colleagues for many years. So, thank you so much. I am delighted to be here, I'm honored to be here. Uh, but if it weren't for the hard work of a group of people recently, I wouldn't have been here, and I would not have represented Palestinians um, uh, by being awarded an honorary PhD at LSE. I'd like to say that uh, this group of people, Hillary, Martha Mundy, Claire Hemings, Sarah Franklin, with the strong support of Jane Pugh, pushed the idea of having a Palestinian academic uh, be honored with a PhD from LSE, and they succeeded. And there was a man who helped them, to the best of my knowledge. He wrote an endorsement that was very strong and uh, very supportive. And so I thank all of you for that. Um, I want to say, I have half an hour, right? that this whole issue of dignity was part of what we're doing and it did not begin because of the Arab revolts. And by the way, many Arabs do not like the notion of spring because there's spring, then there's summer, and there's going to be winter again. And also they 
quite a few of them actually we've been discussing with Tunisia and Libya, etc. Let's call a spade a spade. These are revolts or revolutions. Why should it be called spring? Anyway, our notion of trying to understand dignity and its relation to health outcomes um, takes us back to about um, almost um, a decade since 2000. At the time, as Palestinian academics who were not able to get to work, who were under curfew, who were exposed to severe political violence, we began to realize that we too have ill health. And that although there are reports uh, about morbidity and mortality and disability, in fact, the dead are 100% dead, and we needed to attend to the living ourselves, first and foremost, but also others. And this is how we began to say, look, what we need to do is to rethink health in ways so that we're able to measure the impact of political violence on health in new ways. And I must tell you that at the time, uh, because of the WHO Hinari uh, access to the literature, um, we discovered Derek Summerfield. Remember Derek? When was it? 2002 or 2003 when you published uh, War and Mental Health? About, yeah, about uh, two, I think. 2002. And that was a very stunning thing. I think I wrote you and told you at the time that it's as if you took the ideas out of our brain and put them in such clear words. Thank you very much for doing that. And what he was trying to say is something that we have understood and that we've been saying ever since, which is that people who are exposed to political violence and trauma generally should not be pathologized. We should not have a label of pathology <coughs> hanging over them. We should not necessarily give them the medications and the silly one-to-one -one psychological therapies. What we need to do is get them back to normal life as soon as possible. And normally, although they have symptoms, they heal within community, with some exceptions, right? I'm translating you correctly, okay. So basically, we've taken that and reworked it for the Palestinian context. So by about 2002, 2003, we were conducting focus group discussions with various types of people who were exposed to trauma and political violence. And it so happened that we also conducted focus group discussions with ambulance drivers in the Ramallah region to try to find out what happened to them. And we were shocked, actually, the, the class, we conducted focus group discussions with our students, the MPH students. In the end, we all began to cry with them because they were crying. And a main feature of their trauma was the humiliation. They kept talking about humiliation and how it made them feel ill health. At that stage, we began to understand that what we need to do is study humiliation and try to link it to health outcomes. And sure enough, in 2003, we conducted a study. And by 2009, we published a paper where we actually developed a measure of humiliation, a scale, and where we demonstrated how humiliation is associated with negative health outcomes. Then we forgot about that a little bit because we got involved with the Gaza carnage study. 
And uh, with, with that, we managed to develop new measures, subjective measures of health to complement the objective ones, morbidity, mortality, etc. So we developed a, a, a distress scale relevant to Palestine because as you probably know, Derek, distress is manifested in different ways in different communities and different cultures. And so we couldn't possibly use the national level distress scales because we manifested that in different ways. We developed a human insecurity scale. We developed different types of scales to try to capture how political violence <coughs> has an impact, a negative impact on health. And then uh, at one point uh, this year, uh, Rima Afifi from the American University of Beirut raised the issue of dignity humiliation once again. That was in June of this year. And we immediately jumped on the bandwagon to continue what we started, but we were interrupted because of the uh, Gaza, uh, the Gaza carnage uh, of 2008-2009. Uh, and this is how it happened. We are continuing now with this study uh, to try to find from the bottom upwards what people uh, know about dignity, how they define it, and how important it is to them, and whether it's worth it to study it or not study it, as we usually do, because we always start from the, you know, with focus group discussions and interviews, and then try to link <coughs> dignity or the loss of dignity to, to health outcomes. I think we should, yeah. Okay, so we did that. Now, we went back to the humiliation data and constructed an open-ended, semi-structured interview. And uh, uh, based on that, we tested it among ourselves. And then what we wanted to do is find out how young Palestinians define dignity and what its components are, and what are the factors which increase or decrease dignity, and how important it is for them. And it was important to, to go through that because at least in public health and ep epidemiology especially, what we do is we turn qualitative insights into <coughs> quantitative variables, which we divide into variables to make facets, items, and then domains because we have to do that. And then we build a scale, and then we test that through surveys, and then we do the associations. Uh, and so we decided to take uh, 102 uh, students and interview a random sample of students over a period of two months. And uh, we divided them into three groups. The first group is public school, public is governmental school. Governmental school students aged 15 to 17 or 18. Private school students, that's friend school where you went, uh, both boys and girls. And then Birzeit University students, both young men and young women from 18 to 24. Um, and we made sure to um, choose a school which is in the semi-rural area and an urban area, etc. And here are some of the results. Uh, we found uh, that our sample is uh, reflective of 
the general type of population that is found in these schools and at Birzeit University, the large majority had West Bank identity cards and about 12% have Jerusalem identity cards. I want to tell you it's really important, this identity card business, because West Bank identity card holders do not have access to Jerusalem and the <coughs> important tertiary care centers that are found there, that are found in East Jerusalem and they are Palestinian. We don't have access to different parts of, uh, we don't have access, for example, to the Tel Aviv airport. Uh, we have to have permits to enter Jerusalem. We have to have permits sometimes to enter other parts. We have to go through checkpoints in order to reach Nablus or Hebron. And we have to go through upper side roads, very long <coughs> roads, specifically assigned for Palestinians um, in order to travel. Uh, so the large majority had West Bank IDs, and this had something to do with the nature of the responses, the responses to the questions. You're saying yes. 51% uh, were urban dwellers, 43% were rural dwellers, and only 6% were camp dwellers. And by the way, on the West Bank, um, there are about 8 to 9% who are refugee camp dwellers only. So that's reflective of what we have overall. And 16% came from the north of the West Bank, 2% from the south, 5% Jerusalem, and a high of 73% Central West Bank. This is a reflection of what has been happening to national institutions, including Birzeit University, in terms of checkpoints <coughs> and so on. We're becoming regional rather than national. It used to be that the student um, population came from the different regions of the West Bank. These days, a high of 73%. In fact, it's even more for Birzeit. Come mostly from the center of the country because of checkpoints. It's very difficult to try to come from Hebron to Birzeit University on a daily basis. Components of dignity. What we did is that we analyzed and read and reread and reread the responses of these kids until themes and sub-themes came about in the typical qualitative fashion. And then we gradually began to merge them into the components which we call domains. And we found that mainly there are four domains uh, within which the responses uh, could be included. The first is respect, and this includes a range of types of respect. It's really an important concept, respecting yourself, respecting others, and being respected <coughs> by others. So this domain is likely to have maybe seven or eight or nine questions in the future, once we test it statistically, based on this idea of you respect yourself, you respect others, and others respect you. These are the three ideas. The second uh, domain was abiding by societal norms. And here we found some very interesting results because societal norms ranged from the traditional, the religious, all the way to the human rights principles. I mean, it was quite stunning. And so there were quite a few variations among these kids. And I, my feeling is that this is re related to the, to the degree to which they are exposed to the outside world. And unfortunately, this is linked to class, whether you're from the middle class, whether you're from the lower class, etc. The third domain is pride and honor. I'm not so sure if we will continue to keep this domain or not, because as we went along, we found out increasingly that we could 
probably merge it into one other domain, like, for example, uh, the respect, for example. And finally, freedoms and rights. That was an amazing domain. 28% reported that uh, this is a very important domain. Freedoms and rights covered the whole range from women's rights, from the right <coughs> to do what you want, to study what you want, and of course, the right to freedoms, not having checkpoints, and having a freedom as, as a collective entity, not only as an individual entity. Examples of some of these quotes related to respect, one girl uh, from a private high school is saying, to respect others, to be generous with others, to treat everyone in the same way without differentiating between people. Uh, another Birzeit University student said, dignity is a feeling of presence, existence, to be heard and to be respected for who I am and my opinion, and not to be marginalized. Uh, marginalization came as a very important theme uh, that these students talked about. Abiding by societal norms included things like, when I have social and human principles, it is not only principles, it is feelings as well, which, as, which are socially constructed. Sorry, there's a, In society, a behavior could increase or decrease dignity. It is a relative matter. Or morals that we live by, that have become customs and traditions. Dignity corresponds to gender. Some problems in society affect strongly a young woman's dignity. I think this is related to honor, but we'll have to delve more into it. Okay, pride and honor, one defends one's dignity and honor. Honor encompasses everything, including dignity. Or that one must protect oneself and fear for the honor of people, and not to humiliate oneself or let the Israeli occupation army humiliate him at the checkpoint. Freedoms and rights. Dignity is a personal freedom to human beings, enjoying rights and abiding by responsibilities freely, and defending one's country. So there's a mix between the individual and the collective here. That a person lives in a way in which he can express his, her feelings without oppression and repression. To be like everyone else and have all my rights. Uh, one people's dignity is different from another. Our dignity as a people has been humiliated because of the Israeli military occupation and because they took our land. When we ask them what would increase dignity, a very high 54% reported that respect would increase their dignity if they respect others, if they get respected. But then 51% reported freedoms and rights. And the rest is in between. Some quotes regarding respect, things that increase dignity, doing good deeds, helping people, respecting the elderly, and responding to people in good ways. Or to respect one another, not to be thought of as disrespectful, not to accept insult and humiliation, not to let the Israeli soldiers insult him at the checkpoint and confront them as they have no right to humiliate us. This whole thing about Israeli occupation was quite dominant in the discussion of dignity and humiliation. Abiding by societal norms, to uphold customs and traditions, to respect oneself in one's country, to have good relations with family and having no one come above family. I wonder what that means. <laughs> we have to interview <laughs> a bit more about family. 
to have a voice in society and a social role in the family, to have a people and a country. Pride and honor, helping others and defending the dignity and rights of women, and especially their honor in this country and having good manners. Or doing things that show the love for the land and defending it, and defending honor and principles. Freedoms and rights, when we watch television and witness the Palestinian prisoner exchange, we see that Palestinians have dignity because they succeeded in releasing the prisoners. That came right after the prisoner exchange, that's why. Ending the Israeli occupation, ending the Palestinian division, and as an Arab, rejecting any external interference with any Arab affairs, <coughs> refers, reference to Libya, having freedoms and democracy, but developed internally, education as a weapon, ending occupation. It's everything together. Decreasing dignity, something very similar again. And I'm going to move, because of time, to the, huh? Yeah. 93% responded that dignity is extremely important on a scale of zero to 10, it was over eight, nine and 10. It's expected, it's extremely important. And the rest reported that it's moderately important. So they think it's important, they want us to study it, they want to demonstrate to the world, they want to demonstrate to Birzeit University that they need to be respected, that they need to be free, etc. Dignity is very important. It is one of the priorities of humans. Anything can be lost, but dignity, dignity is the person. It is your presence. When one loses their dignity, one loses their self-respect and their goals in life. However, when we looked at the loss of dignity and humiliation, these students um, expressed something interesting, which we knew kind of already, but we didn't, we didn't realize, and that's the difference, which is that in the Palestinian colloquial Arabic, there are two distinct terms for humiliation. There is ihane, it's, it's more than an insult. It's humiliation in English. But in Arabic, it's ihane, which usually can be overcome immediately or over time. However, dhul, and you know about dhul, exactly. Dhul is a much bigger injury and cannot be overcome. Ihane seems to be understood as having been humiliated privately and individually. It is a concept which describes the feeling of an individual. However, dhul is understood as having been humiliated publicly and losing face. It is understood as a collective phenomenon, especially when humi humiliated by the Israeli army. When you talk about dhul in our context, it's usually dhul based on the based on dhul by the Israeli military. You don't talk about dhul when somebody curses you in public. You're not madhlul. You are mahyun. It's a different kind of uh, construct. So ihane is internal. Zul is external, such as when the Israeli army beats people and tortures them and humiliates them publicly. Also, the term ihane is more specific to the individual, something immediate for a moment. Zul is more encompassing. It combines a variety of situations over years, such as the zul of the Palestinian people by Israeli occupation. These are quotes from the kids. We ask them about the difference. 
Ihani is when someone curses me. Dhul is bigger, larger. For example, my brother is in an Israeli prison and how much they tortured him during interrogation. This makes us feel the dhul. Ihane, words, speech, which injure someone. Dhul is when someone enslaves another and forces him to do things against his will. And to give you an idea about the Zul and the Ihane and the loss of dignity, this is an Israeli army checkpoint, the daily harassment the students talk about, the stress and threat of everyday life, tear gas galore. I mean, all of us have had quite a few doses. The road to Birzeit University up to 2004, you remember that, don't you? Yeah. It was gouged out and we had, <coughs> we, all, we all resisted by crossing these checkpoints and moving through this gouge out road, facing the tear gas, etc., as a method of resistance. It was just getting to the university, which was to us resistance. <coughs> That's how it was like in winter. It was not easy especially for older people like me. Ooh. <laughs> With the kids, it was easier. But for us, that was very hard. I mean, with arthritis. <laughs> that was hard. Uh, walking in the summer, in the heat, that was easier than the winter, I must say. Transporting people that way to get to the university, that was one of our workers, a research assistant, Jinan. Crossing to reach basic services at gunpoint. Phosphorus thrown at an UNRWA school in Gaza in January to give you an idea about the political violence we face. And we live in open air prisons. But we refuse to give up. We climb the wall to reach services at the risk of being detained, arrested, or shot. It's called tenacity. It's better than resilience. I discovered this word recently. <laughs> Tenacious. Yeah. Despite everything, we are resilient. We continue to live and normalize uh, the abnormal. So we sing, we dance, we study and graduate and refuse the label of terrorists or victims. And when injustice becomes law, resistance becomes a duty, is what our young people say. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Rita. And I think I say that for all of us. Um, really, that does show you um, in a fascinating way, especially for those of us who are social scientists like me, who rather abandoned um, that sort of data collection, how enormously powerful it can be. It, just, it can be so powerful and so effective as a way of communicating to people who are outside it. Now, what we're going to do now is take some questions, and I think let's... Let's start off, and if it seems to me it'd be nice to take two or three together, then I'll take another one. Um, if the question itself looks like something that Rita would like to answer then and there, we'll do it that way. Is, it, is that all right with everyone? Okay, let's go. Please. Hi, uh, Rita, thank you very much uh, for that uh, exposition. Uh, my question to you is really about um, I mean, you could not have been surprised uh, by the, the reasons why people feel the way they feel and the sort of things that they might want. Wouldn't that, isn't that something that you would expect uh, from uh, people under occupation? 
I'm getting at the earlier part of your slides when you're describing the kinds of things that made feel, people feel bad and the sort of things they, would, they think would constitute and make them feel more dignified and so on. I mean, it, what did, it, did any of it surprise you? That's another way, perhaps, of putting it. Do you want to take that or have one or two more? Let's, let's, let's take another one and see, because that's an interesting. Anybody else want a question anywhere near that? Or another area altogether? Jonathan. That might be fun to take that together. After all, readers are feminists, so it'll be interesting to mix them up, those two. <laughs> sure, why not? <laughs> you take those two, it'll be fun. Okay, uh, in some ways we were not surprised by that, but in other ways we were. And as far as we're concerned, a rule of thumb, uh, if we have to ask these kids in order to make sure that we're constructing skills in ways that are compatible with their reality, not our thinking. So we, even though we were not surprised at some results, we still needed to do this in order to contract the scale. What we were very surprised about is the ihani dhul business, the internal-external, the private-public, the losing face, not losing face. For example, if one girl was telling us, if my father beats me, it's it's anihane, it's not zul, because he's my father, it's okay <coughs> for him to beat me, and as long as he doesn't beat me in public, it's okay. That kind of stuff. So that surprised us that this girl thought that it's okay for her father to beat her. Which, okay, so, things like that. Zul, everybody <coughs> thought, everybody thought that zul, not only you cannot get over, but it makes you ill. That, that's, so that was a very big surprise. Other surprises related to that question, we knew there were male-female differences. We knew we suspected differences. We suspected there were. But what we didn't realize was the extent to which the uh, honor-shame uh, dichotomy was relevant to the males much more so than the females. Honor shame in relation to the women was much more prevalent among the men than the women. We cannot generalize from this. These are only insights. And this is only 102 cases, that's all. But it's a, I think we're going to pick up on that in the future and make sure to ask questions that will differentiate the responses of men compared to women. I should have asked everybody to give their name and affiliation, so I'll do it for you. Dr. Carter Comey from Exeter, Jonathan Rosenhead from here. Uh, shall I? Do you think we need this mic yes, handed round? It makes life easier. It's my fault. Hmm? Hold on, wait a minute. If you come a little closer, come a little bit closer. Question, follow-up question is, it seemed to me to be that the, the statements by the males seemed to be more about what you should do to change the situation. And the 
split statements from the Vienna ICG more how they felt the situation. So I'm not sure I've c captured it exactly rightly, but there seemed to be uh, a difficulty of the, the, the men to absorb the situation without thinking about how it might be changed. But that could just be a couple of quotes, or it could be my misery. You know, we didn't take that impression, but I will take a note of it. Uh, maybe that was accidental in relation to what we, we exposed in terms of quotations. Our impression, after having analyzed the data, is that men were more in tune with the problem of checkpoints while women were more in tune with the problem of the lack of freedom related to the family and society. And they were very strong about wanting change. But I'm sorry it didn't appear okay. that way here. It wasn't quite like that. Please. Uh, Derek Sanford, King's College. Thanks, um, Derek Sanford, King's College. Rita, the what you were saying earlier about a link, say, between feelings of humiliation, the earlier research, and complaints about ill health, symptoms, and all that. Presumably, therefore, if there's going to be a public health dimension in the same, if were there to be a link in the same way, it's going to be with Thule, isn't it? It's not going to be, because, in a way, Thule is non-normative, um, and he kind of, in a way, as that girl expressed about her father, sort of normative. Um, you wouldn't necessarily look for a connection there, but I guess, may generate the kind of associations you found with humility, with humiliation, I, I wonder. Would it? Would you expect that? I'm having serious difficulty staying out of this one. I've been on the fringes of a fight in Britain. I mean, I've not been, it's not been, as it were, one of my campaign issues, but it's some of my dearest friends, and that is to stop violent men. And nobody cares whether it's their fathers, their lovers, their husbands, or anyone else. So we've tried to range, take it from full to, no, from the first one, the Italian, the, the to make it full. And so that, for us, has been a major battle going on for 20 years, with some, but still modest success. So how would we try to patch that together? <laughs> yeah, I'd like to patch that together. It's getting complicated. I, I, I would like to say that you're absolutely right in terms of women, but just to give you an idea, one of the kids was telling us that uh, the teachers beat the, the uh, school uh, yeah, students and that we've had in the past cases where they told us that this beating is good for them. So it's, it's not just the women that perceive mm. the beating mm. as good for them, it's also the boys who perceive it, and it's not only by parents, it's by teachers, and it's only recently where there's been a big debate over beating mm. at school. Corporal punishment at school is still practiced uh, big time. Now, of course, uh, what we would like to do is build that scale of dignity and the loss of it and link it to health outcomes, for sure. Mm, and we're a bit ahead now compared to 2007. Uh, what we discovered is that the WHO five, five simple well-being questions keep factoring extremely well, factor analysis, etc. you know, the statistics, very well in our society. So we would like to now link that into 
the well-being questions, but also to things that we worked on in the past, which is the quality of life in health, the WHO BREF, which was modified to suit the Palestinian context. To us as public health professionals, we always link these subjective measures to health. And that's exactly our task, to demonstrate how health is negatively affected by occupation beyond mortality and morbidity. There's I can't see around. Some around here, good. Rajay Bhatnishi uh, from Stanford University. Uh, thank you, Rita, for a wonderful presentation as always. Uh, I actually wanted to follow up on what you were just talking about with uh, these various indicators. And one of the things that you mentioned early on was that the typical indicators that are used uh, by WHO and others, maybe with the exception of this WHO5, um, aren't really applicable perhaps in the Palestinian context or in other developing country contexts around the world with various, uh, various cultural um, reservations that are opposed to them. But I wonder, with all these different indices that you've worked on creating recently, um, how do they differ in terms of the outcome um, when compared to the standardized global um, metrics? That is, are we under pathologizing disease? Are we over pathologizing disease? Are we underestimating exposures to uh, risk factors um, or stressors? Or are we overestimating those exposures? Could you give us a flavor of how those indices stack up compared to the standard WHO metrics? Yes, of course, uh, Rajai. For the quality of life and for other things also, uh, we compared uh, with 23 countries that were involved in the WHO field trials. And uh, what we found is that uh, the quality of life of Palestinians uh, living under occupation was um, second to the worst country. So in terms of international measures, we're pretty low. And that, that's one reason why it's good to continue using international measures. Uh, in terms of well-being and um, uh, health and behavior of school children, um, the, uh, our studies demonstrated that uh, we fared the lowest of all countries that were participating in the health and behavior of school children studies. So here you have a situation where uh, although the infant mortality is low, it's, it's quite low. Although maternal mortality is low, although we don't have HIV-AIDS, or don't, we don't have malaria, actually subjective measures of health demonstrate <coughs> ill health in a much better ways than the classical objective mothers. And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to say, okay, we're alive, but we're barely alive. We're the walking dead. What we need to do is attend to the health of the living before, before they become sick, because you see exposure to chronic political violence and severe distress over time, over the life course, is now known to create disease later on in life. So in a way, what we're trying to do is, is prevention uh, rather than cure. Did I understand? Yeah, I mean, the other, the other side of it is, are, are these, for example, the, the, the indicators on stressors, are they overestimating or over-pathologizing situations that aren't even pathologic in the Palestinian context? With the... I don't know the answer to that because the distress measure we used uh, was uh, we developed ourselves in cooperation with the Gaza Community Mental Health Project. But we must remember that with distress and others, if you check 
uh, population, if you, if you do a study immediately after uh, a major trauma, their distress levels will be very high. And if you come to them two years later, it probably has declined. So what we were capturing was the distress level at a particular moment in time, which doesn't have to be the same over time. For sure, it changes. We know that from our own experience as well. So I don't know the answer with distress, but uh, we couldn't use international instruments. There are so many international instruments that are not relevant to Palestinian culture or the way we tick. There are so many words that we can't even translate, like ham ram, you know about that, or dhul, it cannot be translated. <coughs> Likewise, um, self-esteem cannot be translated into Arabic. It just doesn't exist. And so there is a limit to the, to the use of international instruments, although useful, but sometimes it's much better to start your own and then check it in other local, um, other Arab cultures. For example, now, Rajai, we're testing the human security instrument in Lebanon among Palestinian refugees. And we're going to see whether we're able to use the same instrument at the Arab world level or not. I find that, I mean, I find the problem of language absolutely fascinating because I was listening to those words and racking around in my head to think, was there anything that conveyed that in English which I could turn to? And I was thinking, I've got to have to think about that for a lot longer, because I'm not sure there is anything between those two concepts of dignity and that we would introduce to. Derek wants to come back again. Now, I warn the rest of you, there's a lot of doctors in the room. <laughs> if you're not a doctor, sharpen your action up. Derek, do speak. <laughs> Last thing, just, uh, no, just no. mentioned Lebanon. That's interesting. I'm just thinking, in relation to these methodologies around subjective ill health, did you ever try to find us as to a quote unquote control population uh, <coughs> that in many ways was the background was similar? I was wondering about a population in Jordan, which might capture some of the characteristics, uh, socioeconomic or, and cultural, obviously, of your population. Mm -hmm. And given them, you know, what would be the baseline for the region if you took the occupation out of it and maybe Jordan? Mm -hmm some population in Jordan could give you a control. I just wonder what their subjective ill health scores would be. It's a brilliant That's question. That's a nice idea. Mm. It's a brilliant question. Yeah, I wonder. And that could be fascinating. I mean, I wonder also because of some of the findings we've had from Gaza and the West Bank, which indicate that Israeli military occupation is not the only problem that creates ill health or distress. And um, in fact, in the Gaza study, uh, when we asked them about uh, what is the main source of their suffering, it, it, it wasn't the invasion. It was the siege and then the invasion, but then they said it's the split between Hamas and Fatah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, no wonder there is this Arab revolt now after so many years of oppression and lack of space for participation, especially for young people, who, by the way, are called by demographers the youth bulge. I it's like cancer. This is very bad. I think we should, we should, we should not use the word. We should, yeah. I mean, these are assets, not a bunch. But anyway, it will be extremely interesting to find a baseline for different Arab countries, Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, etc., and then compare. But I don't think we'll be able to do that. Um, it, the recording, this records for the podcast, so... Uh. Uh, 
Nick ran no affiliation, just interested passerby. Um, th these concepts of Ihani and Thule, sorry about my pronunciation, but are they, are they concepts that are well-established culturally? Are young people in any way developing their own meanings? I suppose what I'm trying to get at is to what degree have they, are they inheriting from different sources a way of interpreting what is happening, or are they themselves developing some kind of language to describe this? Why don't you take that one, because I think that's a very interesting question. There was a gentleman there, that rather, and then that one over there. Don't speak. I'm the French student. Uh, I'm waiting for the Abdelghani, French student. Uh, I wanted to talk about the cultural aspect. Um, I was wondering if, for example, in other Arab countries uh, where population lived under dictatorship, I, I just wanted to know if you think that you could find the same results, for example, than in, uh, in the case of a Palestinian population under occupation. Or do you think that it's a different, uh, a different, a different context? And um, regarding the cultural aspect, I wanted to know if you think that in uh, some population, the the concept of dignity is more important than in other on other populations. I think those two might be enough to take, don't you? So the first question, uh, it's a very interesting question. You're asking, are they developing their own lingo? Or is it that it's handed down? Uh, my view, Zul is quite often used by politicos or political groups. So I don't think that they are redefining language that way. However, what's interesting is the way they define Ihani. That has changed over time, so much so that it's going to be a rough one trying to analyze this whole issue of social values and norms, because it's so different. And it relates to exposure to the outside world, where you live, conservatism, etc. So that, yes, you're absolutely right. We need to problematize that notion because it means different things to different people and it means something different to young people compared to people like us. Very interesting, yeah. As for um, similarities and differences with the Arab world, I don't know. I imagine there will be similarities because uh, we, we have all lived under dictatorship. And mind you, before 1967, we lived under the dictatorship of Jordan. Huh? We were occupied by Jordan too, I mean blasphemy, but that's what happened. We, the Palestinians, yeah, we, we were forcibly we annexed to Jordan. We occupied no. we <laughs> oh, yeah. Yes, exactly. So, <laughs> so, so there must be similarities, but I think there are also differences. I think the similarities pertain to maybe Iraqis more so than others these days, because there is sort of an occupation of Iraq. Uh, maybe their situation is far worse than ours, probably so. But the similarities are more in terms of Iraq and Palestine rather than, let's say, Palestine and Egypt. Yeah. But for example, in the case of Tunisia, 
they said there were, a lot of people were emphasizing this, the notion of uh, dignity when Muhammad uh, Al-Wazizi uh, set himself on fire. <laughs> he, they said that it was this concept of dignity that uh, led him to, to set himself on fire. Absolutely. And, uh, wow. Yes. Now, I've got a little cue. I've got Radha and then Stephen. Radha, it's yours. <coughs> uh, Meet, I want to follow up on this question of uh, wider, wider uh, implications of your work. Um, I, I really think you've hit on mm. something brilliant mm. with this. This whole business of Ihani and Dhul is very, very important. Mm. Um, and just very quickly, just to tell you, when I first, my first question related to the earlier part, not to this very interesting idea that you have, but to the other questions, which were what makes you feel humiliated and so on. Now, um, if you now look at this as a wider thing, uh, and we again visit the Arab revolutions, which you're quite right to point out to, where the issue of dignity is, it was extremely important. I think it's well recognized in Tunisia and in Egypt. Now. If you think about that, that was very much uh, linked to impotence. <coughs> impotence, the inability to be able to do something, to be allowed <coughs> to do something about your situation. Now, uh, so that, that so, what, so now if we come back, if we relate that backwards to the Palestinian situation, um, what I'm wondering is, not only is there the, the feeling of probably part helplessness, part impotence in the face of the Israeli army. But did you look at, and, or would you like to comment on, what part of that might have been related to the way the Palestinian Authority has now become similar to some regimes in the Arab world and oppresses the, the, the people. So they undergo a double <coughs> oppression. And was this, did this feature among your answers, and is this something you felt you shouldn't ask about, it would be interesting to know. This is a very tentative thought. Stephen Rowe has retired. I want to make it <laughs> as, a, as, as a suggestion, but I hope you don't regard these as entirely trivial. There's a fascinating way the discussion's been going around in relationship to international comparisons. Many of us in Britain have been reading over the last weeks the transcripts of accounts from the rioters um, in, 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 in London. And the words that crop up again and again from these young people mm. are the words respect, mm. disrespect, and humiliation. Fantastic. Above all, the humiliation in the, the black community <coughs> and the stop and search techniques of the police. And I just wonder if you could possibly draw on any <coughs> other materials to give you some comparative focus there. Well, I'm not a social scientist, but it does seem to me that there might be a resource there that would be some value. Well, the work has been <coughs> carried out jointly between The Guardian and a professor of social policy here, <coughs> so we ought to be able to make that connection, and that should, could be quite useful. Mm, definitely. So there's two ideas for research now. Fantastic, <laughs> yeah. So Would you like me to answer Rada then? Please. Uh, Rada, uh, you're absolutely right. <laughs> what uh, You're absolutely right about that question in terms of incapacitation. Uh, we did not ask the kids, but 
In 2004, we did some work uh, on the issue. And as Jamil Hilal and Hilal Frisch demonstrated way back in 1997, was that the Palestinian Authority came in and deliberately began to close the spaces for participation. And I remember at the time uh, what the discourse was like among the PA. The discourse was how do we get those kids off the streets and back to where they belong. They were terrified from the people of the first uprising, which was mostly young people and women. Mm. And so there was a deliberate move inside and a closure of that space for their participation. So political participation shrank not only because of the Israeli military, not only because of the securitization of the country, but also because the PA became the instrument through which the security of Israel was guaranteed. So that's one. Also, economic participation became a big problem because of the closure, siege, etc., and because we have a growing number of young people who need work, but where the PA is incapable of providing with work, and also a closure of the space for social participation, because the, under the Palestinian Authority, a, a, a social conservatism rose. Now, you could argue it was deliberate, you could also argue that because of, um, I think it's deliberate, that's my view, but uh, you could also argue that uh, because people were so disappointed, you know, conservatism goes on the rise, and the first things to go are women and young people. So socially, they lost the space for participation, and suddenly, they had no space at all, and as a result of that, they became feeling incapacitated uh, was part of the results of the 2004 study. And feeling incapacitated is what led, and the lack of dignity is what led to these Arab revolts as well. Absolutely. Definitely. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Hi, I'm, I'm Fahim Hamid, no affiliation. Um, Would you use the mic? It's for the podcast. Is, um, is there any relation between the word uh, oppression and vote? Because when I hear the word vote, I, I, I think maybe I think of the word oppression or maybe humiliation because of oppression. Is that, could you comment? Is that? They talked about that a lot. <laughs> they talked about oppression. Yes, the, did, did the young people talk about oppression? Yes, they talked about oppression, they talked about the zulum. Ish is zulum in English. Injustice. Injustice, but again, it's but it's not words. exactly. It's not exactly. There are too many words you can't translate. Zulum is half. You know, they talked a lot oppression, but with with many, many, many terms. Yeah, they talked a lot about that, but that wasn't the the, the main theme of this presentation. Oppression. Uh, the main theme was the loss of dignity or or having dignity. But due to oppression, due to Israeli military, uh, the oppression is always linked to the zul, which is the bigger humiliation. Thank you. Um, my name is Ala Tartir, and I'm a PhD candidate here at London School of Economics. And um, thank you very much. I feel really, uh, uh, it's, it feels really great that you're here today. And. Um, <coughs> I want to pick on Dr. Karma's question about the Palestinian Authority and the changes that happened there. And 
I was wondering if the notion of resistance, how, how the notion of resistance interacts with the questions and with the quotes from the students, uh, like the, or what you call the, the kids. And um, like one of the changes that happened after, you know, particularly in the last five, five years or so is um, having one exclusive way of resistance. And because at some point, this military resistance and other source of re resistance was sort of source of pride and source of dignity. And as one of the quotes uh, was after the, ex the exchange, also they pointed out the prisoner exchange, that we feel dignity. So the, the notion of <coughs> resistance and absence of that, the, the traditional uh, sort of resistance appear there. And the second thing related to, this is a pilot study for, for uh, Ramallah and a few places in Ramallah. Now the next phase is to, to replicate that in different uh, government or uh, different cases. Hmm? Shall I answer? Do please. Well, very interesting, the, uh, this whole resistance issue. Uh, I will draw on another project we're doing in order to elaborate on this. The other project we're doing simultaneously is also very interesting. The reason why these, these questions are interesting is because people have not studied them and we begin from the bottom upwards. So we, we, we go with the flow and this is when we do service. This study is, looks at the consequences of the uh, political incarceration of the husband on the wives and children. But wives, I emphasize wives, because in the Palestinian psyche, in the Palestinian whatever, the heroism is that of the man, but also the heroism is that of the mother. It is never the wife, right? So we're looking at the wife. And we were horrified with some of the findings. You wouldn't believe, I mean, not only in terms of the oppression of the occupier, the visitation, etc., but how community deals with women once the husband is away, it's horrible. I mean, they, 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 she becomes a, a victim, she becomes, a, she becomes captive to new rules and regulations whereby she cannot move around. But anyway, the, in this study, we came uh, to the conclusion that Sarah Roy uh, uh, noted in 2001, which is that while in the 1980s resistance and heroism entailed being in prison, so therefore the value of imprisonment was very high, so therefore the families of prisoners were very well taken care of of community and they had dignity, etc., etc. In contrast, after 2000, there seems to have been a strong decline in the value of imprisonment, whereby <coughs> it was seen as resistance, and now it is seen as what's this shuhada? Why do they do these things and you know make us suffer, etc.? So it becomes as a, a a thing of blame rather than a thing of heroism. And that is one reason why these women are having a harder time. Because there's no longer the social support that there was once upon a time w yeah, for the imprisoned husband, and uh, as a result, they suffer. So this is what you wanted to hear, didn't you? Because you probably knew it, didn't you? Well, not necessarily. <laughs> 
No, not necessarily, but I was wondering, like, <coughs> if you take, for instance, uh, uh, Balata camps or Jenny, Balata, Balata or Jenny camps, <coughs> and how that will difference, will be different <coughs> results, and will respect be the first thing, or bride and honor, and that will be uh, just for future, but uh, no, of course, that's not like that. Yeah. Okay, the second thing is, of course, <coughs> This is a qualitative study, which is a pilot. It's intended to develop an instrument, variables, questions, facets, domains, so that we can do a cross-sectional survey that covers all of the population. That's what we hope to do. I don't know when, because we're searching for money. It's always the problem of money. So, but we're going to do it. Question, I think. Hi, I'm Kathy Nicholson Arnholson, an um, LSE um, PhD student here in social psychology. Um, thank you very much. Uh, I found it very informative. Uh, but just carrying on from the last question, um, you're talking about making up this scale. Uh, but what's the strategy for it? You, you try to connect it to mental health, but in what way can you then relate it to mental health? Is there going to be another scale as well that you can use, like a Bex depression scale or something? Because what, what is it really going to tell you, apart from telling you that some of the population suffer quite badly from loss of dignity? How does that relate to mental health? Well, if you develop a skill for dignity, and then you use other scales to try to associate I mean, there's the WHO5, the quality of life breath, the distress, the human insecurity. What you're trying to do is demonstrate that there are other measures other than the standard which assess the status of health of a population which is captive. And to us, one, it's important because it's advocacy, but there's something more important about that. This is likely to inform practices more than policy. I want to be very frank. Everybody is talking about informing policy, but in fact, the Palestinian Authority doesn't make the policy. It's international aid which does. So at least this kind of project will inform practices dealing with the mental health aspects of the loss of dignity or the gain of dignity within groups, at the group level, at the collective level especially, we know that because we've tried several times in Palestinian culture, the individual attention to mental health doesn't seem to work very well. The collective is of the essence. And so we hope that this will inform collective practices aimed at improving the mental health of our kids. It's not really mental health per se, is it? It's, it's slippery. I mean, a lot of the subject of health complaints would be pitched in a, in a semantic, in a physical idiom, wouldn't they? They wouldn't be pitched there. I think when we start saying mental health, we're, we're thinking about the whole epistemology of, of the, the Western mental health as precisely that which you wouldn't want to globalize and pathologize into, as you were saying earlier, into, into uh, the Western, would you? Absolutely, but that's not what we define as mental health. Yeah. The Western one is mental disease. Ours is mental health, and mental health is integrally linked. You know, it's in the Arabic <coughs> tradition, the Arabic system of, uh, <laughs> the Arabic tradition has always had it, and you ask your grandmother, your grandmother, that physical, mental, social, and psychological well-being are all linked together. So, so to us, mental health is not the biomedical, it's something else. 
And um, we, you know what? We've been collecting idioms uh, over time uh, describing the state of health of a person. Huh? And you can ask somebody, how are you today? And somebody would say, Mish Mabsut, I'm not happy. But that means physically also sick. And then you would ask, how are you today? The second day, Mjahlak, <coughs> wrinkled. And how are you? And, and so on and so forth. So that concept of mental health is integrally linked to something physical and social, unlike the biomedical Boston model. But thank you for the clarification. Well, it's a distinction you have to keep making over and over again, particularly yeah. when you're addressing audiences worldwide, because the Western audience, will, when they think mental health, they think about mental health systems, they actually think about the biomedical dominance is so powerful here, they are hearing you say something different from what you mean, and you have to keep saying what mm. you've just said, don't you? Mm. I think research is wonderful, yes. I think this discussion has brought out some really wonderful points. I think that one has just been an example of the tremendous value of any international discussion in something um, which in itself is intellectually fascinating, politically it's horrifying, the context, but to just draw this out and make the difference between different cultures so profound. I mean, I shall go on thinking about those distinctions of dignity for a very long time. <laughs> you know, I found my mind just floating here and there and I was thinking about the literature. It's, it's not organized in this tidy way that you're, you're speaking about, research way, except with historical research. For example, the very different responses of the French under the Nazi occupation, because mm. what you got there was some people who I think it was Derek spoke of, who just didn't want to know that someone was in prison and they didn't want to know a resistance person because they were letting people not have a quiet life and you would have a quiet life under the Nazis if you didn't resist. And then you've got other people who are enormously proud of the resistance and got tremendous dignity from being part in no ha how matter small a way that they had played that part. And I think you know, there, there is a kind of, it's, it's a qualitative literature to draw on, but it certainly is out there and I, I found <clears throat> tremendous amount of this coming into my mind and finding it very pleasurable to hear you take hold of it and sort it in, in such nice, clear, analytical ways. And for sharing this with us, um, improving our knowledge of dignity, thank you very much, Rita. And may I ask you to show your appreciation.